Last week, um, we continued talking about, uh, about the Bible, and we talked about the Bible from the beginning as a book about God, which is probably a good place to start, and uh, God who desires to be in relationship, and we are people who sin, we are people who break relationship, and the Bible is about God's restoration and rescue plan. That God organizes people into community and redeems the world ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so what is the community that God forms? What is it? It's called Israel, right? Israel. And uh, it comes out of Abram. God calls Abram uh, and, his, and blesses him with descendants at an age past normal childbirth. He has descendants. Eventually they end up in Egypt where they are enslaved. And God rescues them in a magnificent and miraculous way. They go through the wilderness for 40 years, and they come to the land God had promised Abram 750 years earlier. And there God builds not just a people, but a nation. There's eventually a king, Saul, then the great king David, and then Solomon. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, began well but ended poorly. And we talked about last week, we see the seeds of the problems we're going to talk about tonight. We know about the great temple of Solomon that was built. And we talked about how the temple was as much about Solomon as it was about God. But unfortunately became even more about Solomon than it became about God. To build a great temple requires a great public works. And so taxes were raised to the point of impoverishing the people. And people had to work. And when there wasn't enough money to pay them, they had to enslave them. And so there were slave armies building this great temple. This was not particularly pleasing to God. And we see hints uh, in, in 1 Kings toward the end of Solomon's reign that there will be one who will come, who will rebel on behalf of the northern kingdoms. And that's where we begin. Uh, that's where we begin tonight. 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon dies. And his son Rehoboam succeeds him. That's chapter 11, verse 43. Rehoboam had previously been uh, led to... Um, had been led to lead a rebellion of the northern kingdoms, um, but, but they were waiting to see what the new man would do. And so they come, and uh, the, the leader and Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel comes to Rehoboam saying, your father made our yoke heavy, which was saying your father was kind of a jerk. Now, we're going to give you a chance. Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke they place on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam says, give me time to think about it. So he goes away. He consults with two groups of people, the elders and his young friends. The elders say, you know, your father really pushed us hard. Maybe a time of rest would be appreciated by the people. And his friend said, well, you've got to be just as tough as your father and tougher. And su suggests that they say this, which is one of the better lines in Scripture. You should say this to the people who said to you, 
Your father made our yoke heavy, but you must lighten to us. You should say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Which really doesn't make sense when you think about it. Uh, to be disciplined with scorpions. So which would probably be the wise course of action? But which one does he end? <laughs> which one does he end up t- choosing? His friends. Now, interestingly, they do not kill the king. Uh, but instead, the twelve of the twelve tribes, ten of them, align with Jeroboam, and they secede. You'll see that on page two, that northern part, the part north of Jerusalem and east of the river secedes away. Those are the ten tribes. There are ten areas that were apportioned uh, originally, those ten tribes, leaving them with Judah and Benjamin. Uh, So they try to fight back. They send 180,000 troops, but God says to them, don't do it. This is from me, which is interesting, the division of the kingdom appears to be from God. And so the troops listen and they go home. So now there's two kings, Rehoboam's in the south, Jeroboam's in the north. We'll talk about Rehoboam more next week, but let's talk about Jeroboam. He goes north and uh, he builds a place called Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And then he goes and builds Penuel. And uh, this is working until he realizes something. That, that the people he leads, uh, where is the place of religion? Where is the place of sacrifice? Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. So he says, well, I can't have my people who I've led away keep going down to, to worship at Jerusalem. We can't have that. And so he does two things. One, he forbids the people from going to Jerusalem. And two, he decides to start his own religion. Trouble, trouble. I like that. He decides to start his own religion. And this is going to be really important because over and over when we look at the stories of the king, the northern kings, we see over and over every time it says they did evil in the Lord's sight and they followed in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And what does that mean? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 12, what we find is he sets two shrines, one at a place called Bethel. You may know enough Hebrew to know that means the house of God, and the other at Dan. And one might reasonably argue whether having places of worship other than Jerusalem is terribly problematic. It probably is, but the real problem was he also made houses on the high place. This is verse 31 of chapter 12. He made houses on high place and appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not Levites. See, God had made clear that the priests were to be Levites. Do you remember the tribes? Eleven of them got land, but the Levites got a tithe, a tenth of the rest of what <laughs> everyone else gave, which actually evened it out. But so the Levites were the priests. Well, but... So it turns out instead of who God wants to be the priest, Jeroboam decides he can decide who can be priests. This is a problem. Also, uh, he, appoint, he creates a festival day. 
uh, like the festival that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. He did so in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. Oh, yeah, one other thing. He built some golden calves and said, these are our gods. It's like he didn't read the book, folks. It's like he didn't read the book. Do you remember back in Exodus when Moses, they thought he had died up on the mountain? Aaron went and cast golden calves and said, these are the gods who, I mean, I guess they got that part of the, of the, 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 the Levites right. Um, but this was a mistake. In addition, where they went, they were in a community that uh, where many of the people worshipped um, Baal. You might also hear it, Baal. Baal, Baal. Um, I can't say one is right and one is wrong um, because uh, in Hebrew, the it's diff- it's tricky to explain, but there are no vowels in Hebrew. The vowels have kind of been kind of assumed, and so there, we don't know where the vowels are, and we don't know how any of it was pronounced. So go ahead, go crazy. When you read the Old Testament, you're like, I don't know how to pronounce that. Go ahead, give it your best shot. It's probably a good idea as any. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but Baal is kind of a generic name for gods. It is not a. It's not. We think of Baal as like another god, like Yahweh God. It's like a god, but it actually is a broader term that talks about kind of pagan deities um, because you'll see there, you know, there's one called Baal Zebub, and that's a Baal. You're like, wait, that I've heard about that. That can't go well. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It doesn't. Um, so what we see here is this establishment of a new monarchy. The southern kingdom remains with the Davidic monarchy. And what you're going to find, this is a spoiler for next week, so you're a leg up on people who come next week, is that that monarchy continues father to son, father to son, until the time of, uh, and not quite father to son, but it, it stays in the family, until the time of, the, of Babylonian captivity of 586, 587 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, however, is not so anointed. And uh, so it does not... Tra- and very, and there, are, there are these uh, dynasties, but there are several of them. So Jeroboam comes, comes for a while, and, uh, then, and then he, he dies. And then his uh, uh, son uh, uh, Nadab comes, but he's eventually killed by Basha, and Basha has a son named Elah. Elah is also, because of his evil, says what we will do to you, God will do to you what was done to Nadab. Well, no sooner is a guy named Zimri come, kills Elah, and oh, by the way, every person living in Basha's family. So there would be no other pretenders to the throne. He lives seven days. I don't know how he managed to do all this in seven days, but he did. He gets uh, confronted by a guy named Omri, who leads a coup against him. Zimri is backed into a corner pretty literally. He burns the palace down and kills himself. Omri ends up being kind of a transformational leader in Israel. Uh, he, uh, at first, he's got another guy named Tibni. When, after Zimri dies, it gets Tibni and Omri. They're fighting each other, but eventually Omri consolidates power. And when you hear the word consolidates power, you know what that means in this sense. He slaughters Tibni and anyone else who's aligned with him. But what Omri does is he builds a city, a capital named Samaria. 
Samaria is probably is really well placed. It's in a good spot uh, where invaders can be seen as they come. Uh, it ends up being a pretty it, it's a pretty impressive place. Uh, and then he sets up a dynasty, and the Omri dynasty uh, takes up probably it, it's only about a tenth of the four hundred year of the of the, of the of the time of the divided kingdom. Um, but it requires about a third of the text to explain it. Uh, Omri uh, starts making some money. He creates some good alliances. Um, and you know one of the ways you create uh, good alliances when you're a king? You, you, marry. you marry not only for you, but you marry your children off to the daughters of other kings. And Omri did that. He married his, 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 uh, his son Ahab to the daughter of the king of Tyre, whose name was Jezebel. You're like, whoa, this isn't going to go so. You're thinking, oh, this is not, I've heard about this one. This is not going so well. It turns out Ahab was not a great guy, but Jezebel was even worse. Jezebel comes, and unlike Ahab, who's kind of religiously flexible, Jezebel turns out to be pretty devout. Unfortunately, it's to Baal, and she imports a bunch of priests, and Baal worship becomes, uh, becomes a really big deal at this point. Uh, they start building what are called Asherah poles, Asherah, A-S-H-E-R-A-H. They are sacred poles, and they are places of worship. And it said that in every, under, on every high place and under every green tree, there was a worship place to Baal. And, they built, and then uh, they built the altar and a house for Baal at Samaria. And in many ways, Ahab, is, uh, Ahab and Jezebel are pretty wicked, but they're very powerful. In many ways, this is, near the, this is, a, this is a pretty good time in the history of Israel. Uh, but in the midst of this, uh, God calls a prophet. The greatest prophet it's believed of all time, and his name is Elijah. Uh, if you are familiar with the story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus goes onto the high mountain and he is shown bright white, uh, he is uh, um, he is met there by by two figures, Moses and Elijah. Why did he do? Why is that? I think that's pretty clearly symbolism. Moses, symbol of the law. And Elijah's symbol of the prophets, and so uh, and for example, we see that that law and prophets connection and uh, uh, togetherness. Uh, later, uh, when you see Jesus talk about the great commandment, you know, he says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." And the second is like it: love your neighbors yourself. And remember what he says: on these things hang all the law and prophets, right? Law and prophets. Uh, so so uh, Elijah is the great prophet, although interestingly, if he is supposed to be the greatest prophet, he has no book. Uh, the longest prophetic book is Isaiah, and we'll read that next for next week. But Elijah comes and is, uh, is the prophet. We'll talk a little, I want to take a moment now to talk a little bit about what is a prophet. A prophet comes from a, a Greek word. Uh, prophetes, which is one who speaks for a god and interprets his will to man. The Hebrew word for prophet is nabi, which is one who is called. One who is called. They, one who is called. called. 
Like if I call you on the phone. Yeah. One who is called by God. Uh, and we'll talk a, a little more depth about these ones that are written, but, but when the prophets are called, that is one of the first parts. Uh, probably the most famous prophetic calling is, uh, is Isaiah. How many of you know Isaiah chapter 6? Uh, where Isaiah says, here I am, send me, right? That's famous. You've probably heard that. Where he says, you know, who will go for us and whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am. And that is out of a prophetic vision. He sees that. He sees that he is taken up into the heavenly courts and is called and is authorized by God. And then God also calls people of character. And in general, the, it doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the holiness of the prophets, but we believe they are holy people in an unholy world. Now, holiness does have kind of a double dimension. We've talked about this. It can mean a person of great moral character, but it can also be, uh, uh, but it, in its most literal, it's someone who is set apart, who is set apart. The calling sets them apart. The calling makes them holy. And so what they do is when they speak, they do not speak their opinions. They do not speak their ideas. They do not speak their learning. They speak what God tells them to say. And it has both present and future dimensions. Uh, there is a sense of this is the will of God. The prophet communicates that. But also the sense of this is what will happen, particularly if you do not obey. It also says this is what will happen if you do obey. One scholar says it's a it's a it's a it's both forth telling f o r t h telling and foretelling f o r e telling. There is that combination. We think of the prophetic word as something for the future, but in the end, a prophetic word is a word that comes from God through His authorized messengers. So I, I just lead that up. Um, there are also people who claim to be prophets. This, is, this will become a little more of an issue in the southern kingdom when we talk about this, that are false prophets. Uh, there are people who generally say, King, what you're doing is a great idea. You should keep doing it. God likes it. Surprisingly enough, they tend to get listened to by the king. I, I, <laughs> I'm sure that surprised all of you. Um, but let's go back to Elijah. Elijah is an interesting character. Elijah, we first see on the scene, he is predicting there will be a drought. If you're in an agricultural society, we just about, up until about a week ago, about learned what a drought will do in an agricultural society. How long did we go without rain? Eight weeks. They, they went in terms of years without rain. Imagine what that would do. And in fact, Elijah says, it will not rain until I say it will rain. So this causes a severe famine, but eventually it does rain, and people are pretty amazed that it hadn't rained for two years. Elijah says, it will rain, and it rains. It didn't just rain, it pours down rain, which probably on hard, dry ground caused flooding. And so what we see with Elijah, Elijah personifies this chief thing that we see in the story of the northern kingdom. Who is going to be God? Is it going to be Yahweh? the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who delivered them from Egypt, or will it be Baal, the God of Ahab and Jezebel? And there's a famous story of a place where the priests of Baal come against Elijah, 450 of them, and they gather at, uh, they, they, they gather at a place of 
uh, of sacrifice. And uh, they, uh, they go and they say, well, we will see who is God. Elijah says, I am the only, I am, even I am left, a, only I am left a prophet of the Lord, but there's 450 prophets who claim to speak for Baal. So uh, we'll each take a bull, we'll cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but we won't light it on fire. And then uh, you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of my God, and the God who answers and sends fire will be God. Does that make sense? And all the people say, that's a great idea. And so the prophet of Baal says, Elijah says, why don't you all go first? <laughs> and so they do. And they start crying all day long, morning to noon, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They ran around the altar they had made until they were limping. At noon, Elijah says, cry louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's meditating, or maybe he's wandered off, or he went out on a journey. Maybe he's taking a nap, and you need to wake him up. Cry louder. And they did. Then they, took, then they got the swords out and cut themselves until blood started pouring forth from them. They kept doing it all day. No voice, no answer, no fire. Then Elijah said, well, why don't you all come closer? And then he takes the altar that had been thrown down by the worshippers of Baal, 12 stones, according to the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob. And he builds an altar. And then he puts a trench around the altar, large enough to carry it, contain two measures of seed. He puts the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, lay it on the wood, and said, fill four jars with the water, pour it on the burnt offering. You ever tried to light something wet on fire? They did it, and he said, oh, I'll do it a second time. It's not wet enough, they do it a second time. Do it a third time, and they did it so much that the water ran off the altar and into the trench he had dug. And Elijah offers one prayer, and it says, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up all the water that was in the trench. So who won that battle? God. He knew how to use kerosene and make it look like <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not what, it's pretty clear it was water. Uh, and so uh, the people fell on their face and said, the Lord indeed is God, the Lord indeed is God. And then Elijah has all the prophets of Baal seized and they go and they take him down the river and kill them all. <laughs> it's tough stuff, folks. I don't really know what to say. And then it begins to pour down rain. Drought, victory, rain. So Ahab is uh, saying, hey, uh, Jezebel, honey, tough day at the office. <laughs> All the prophets are dead. Jezebel, not happy. And he says, she sends a message, says, I'm going to kill you now. And so he flees, and he's depressed. He says, I've had this great victory. Now someone's trying to kill me. And he says, I'm alone. But God, he's not alone. Because God meets him. God gives him a, 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 a successor. His name is Elisha. And so what we find with, with Ahab and with Elijah is this 
competition, this controversy, and it is a controversy that oversees kind of that key question, who will be God? Will the people of Israel claim the God who brought them out of slavery, or will the king of Israel, will Israel go to another God? It's two different religions, two different choices. Now, they try to have it both ways. Uh, that is kind of the, the way it is. They try to do it both ways. Now, I was reading a little bit about following Baal, and I, I did not know this. Baalism taught that uh, heavy drinking and sexual license were your religious duties. <laughs> Which really makes you wonder how that did, religion didn't survive. I feel like it would be very popular these days. <laughs> so I, I, I actually do remember, we did talk about this. I was in a Bible study years ago and said, he said, this is the best evidence for God I've ever heard of. Because if I had to choose, I'd choose that religion. But yet somehow, that religion died. But the following of God survives. Anyone, do you know anyone follow, who follows Baal by name? No. Do you know people who believe that heavy drinking and sexual license are not a bad thing or even a good thing? Oh, yeah. yeah. So do you see kind of the, the projection of human desires onto religious concepts? And it doesn't die. But here what we find is that religion doesn't triumph, but instead God does. And why is that? Maybe because it's God is real. It's just, a, just an idea. Just an idea. That seems to be the continuing theme here is that the people treat God like he's not real, like he doesn't matter, and he doesn't have anything to say. But what we find is that God does. Eventually Ahab dies, Jezebel survives, and his son Azahiah comes, on, comes, and it says there he follows in the evil, of, evil in the paths of his parents. He worships Baal as well. Uh, he, he, try, he gets injured, and so he says, go and seek out Baal and tell me if I'm going to live or not. Elijah finds out he intervenes first and says, no, Azahiah, you're going to die, and guess what? He does. At this point, Elijah decides to get out of town and ascends to heaven. You know the song, swing low, sweet chariot. Yeah, that one. The chariots of fire came, picked him up, took him to heaven, and his mantle falls on Elisha, who succeeds him. Elisha also performs miracles. As Ahiah dies, Jehoram comes, and it said he's better than his parents. He tears down the big Asherah pole, the big sacred pole that... Ahab erected to, to uh, Ahab erected to Baal, but it says he is still in the sin of Jeroboam. What is that? That's that alternate religion. That's that setting up of false gods and encouraging people to follow uh, false gods. And uh, eventually, though, then, then Elisha comes, and Elisha and Jehoram, uh, they are kind of uh, enemies in the way that Elijah and Ahab were. And uh, during that time, Elisha uh, assists Israel in their fights against Syria, but at the same time, he anoints a new king named Jehu to become the king instead of Jehoram. And uh, what we see there is uh, Jehu comes, and he begins what seems like a new day. 
he comes and he, said, he uh, slaughters the entire Ahab family. And uh, then he comes and he finds Jezebel, the evil queen. It's interesting, Jezebel comes in and says, is that you, Zimri? Do you remember him? Zimri was the, the traitorous, uh, the guy who lived seven days, who's probably just remembered in history as the guy who killed a king and then burned the palace down with himself in it. So she calls him that, which is intentional. And, uh, and then he has Jezebel thrown out, I think thrown out the window, lands on the ground and says, uh, and then says, but she is a daughter of a king. And he tells the men to go and bury her. When they get there, all they find is the skull and the hands. The dogs had eaten her. And if you look back, if you read back, what we find is Elijah prophesies that someday in the place of Jezreel, the dogs will lick your blood and eat you. And it comes true. <laughs> Gee, I know, you all are thinking, this is not what I want to hear after dinner. But I mean, what we see here is that God is a God of judgment. That God gives people opportunities to respond. But God is a God who will not be mocked. God is a God who takes this very seriously. I know that's tough because I think we want to domesticate God and we want to say, you know, God's just a good guy and, you know, you do bad things. God's like, oh, that's okay. But that's not how God is. Our sin is so serious that eventually this judgment leading to death falls on Jesus. You see that? That Jesus' death is the death that we are owed because of our sins. And the death that they have to pay, but that Jesus takes in our stead. Jehu also decides, I will offer even greater sacrifices to Baal, but it's a trap. He gets all the Baal, vis Baal worshippers together and slaughters them all. Uh, Jehu ends up being, uh, he is in some ways a positive influence, but he's also a pretty nasty guy. But Elisha promises through God that he will be given to the fourth generation a dynasty. And what do you know? His dynasty lasts exactly four generations. And we look there, the next four, uh, evil, um, his son Jehoahaz, uh, sought the Lord when he needed him, but in general continued in the sin of Jeroboam. Jehoahaz, evil, did not depart from the sin of Jeroboam. His father's reign, Jehoaz, what we're starting to see is the kingdom starts to shrink a little. Some of the neighbors are starting to take over, start paying attention here. Then Jehoaz comes, evil, he recovers some lands. And then Jeroboam II comes on the scene. He's also evil. This is starting to get to be a pattern, isn't it? And Jeroboam II, in many ways, is the height of the material and the wealth of Israel, the northern kingdom. They had expanded their borders. God had permitted them to do so and uh, had spoken through the prophet Jonah, uh, son of Amittai. There is also the book, Jonah, from the prophet, the son of Amittai. We believe it's possible that that's the same figure, but that is not for certain. Um, just like your first and last, there are other people that probably have your first and last name. There may well have been, we do not know. The most traditional dating, which is what the chart I've given you, is kind of a very traditional interpretation dating of these. 
uh, does place Jonah at, during the reign of Jeroboam II, um, but much of what he says may have dated after the fall of, of Samaria in 722. Some of you know the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is man famously swallowed up by a great fish. God tells him, go and preach repentance to the people in Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria. That's why some people think it's different. We really don't hear much about the Assyrians on the line at this point during the reign of Jeroboam II. But uh, Jonah says, no, I'd rather you kill them all instead. Uh, but So it's interesting. In the midst of this, uh, so he says, you know, Nineveh's this way. I think I'm going to take a boat this way. But God comes, creates a storm in the water, and eventually Jonah admits he's the reason they should throw them into the water. They don't want to do it, but Jonah eventually prevails, and he's thrown into the middle of the sea, and the storm stops. But God rescues Jonah with a whale. The whale is not a punishment. The whale is a rescue. It's not a whale. It's a great fish. It's something that he probably didn't smell so great after being in. And in fact, later Jesus makes that comparison. He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, the son of man, three days in the belly of the earth. Jonah eventually goes and he preaches. He's spit up and he goes and he preaches to the people in Nineveh. And, and he goes, and this town, it takes him days to walk across it. And, and surprisingly enough, they all repent from the king to the livestock. And God forgives them. Isn't that a lovely story? Except Jonah is pretty upset by this. <laughs> Jonah's like, they deserve death, not forgiveness. He never looked at it that he was a great preacher. Yeah, he's like, I mean, can you imagine? He's probably, 40 days and then it will be overthrown. 40 days and then it will be overthrown. 40 days, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and they listen. Why? Because God is at work. And what we hear there is this lesson that God says, anyone who will turn to me, I will forgive and I will save. Also, the during Jeroboam II, we have two, uh, uh, two of the great, um, two great prophets, Amos and Hosea. Amos and Hosea remind us that when we look at the prophets, there are two major themes that all the prophets are going to hit on. Well, almost all of them. One is that they have failed to worship God. They failed to treat God as God. And two, they have failed to care for the poor. And those two things are linked in the prophetic mind. Uh, the failure, because you see, God's gift to them was, was not just the land... Not just the wealth, but it was each other. During the time of Jeroboam II, it was a time of great trade, and some merchants had gotten really rich. And so what was happening is, Jerob uh, is that during that reign, Amos, it was from Tekoa, is in the south. Amos is, is uh, he says, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but he is a son of a herdsman. And so he goes from the south to the north. And he says, the poor here have been neglected and, per and eventually persecuted. The rich had summer and winter palaces, which when you live in an area 
about, the si about half the size of the state of New Jersey really doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it, to have summer and winter palaces. They had ivory inlaid art and furniture. They had great vineyards with the best wine. And meanwhile, the poor were dying on the streets. And God, and meanwhile, they're like, well, we're, commit we're, we're going to church. We're going to the temple. We're offering our sacrifices. And God says, if your heart is all about accumulating wealth and mistreating others, you are no understand what it means to follow me. That's the message of Amos. And so you see there, he says, he judges the other nations around. The other nations are bad. But the main judgment speech is against Israel for this very thing. But Amos, like the prophets, always ends on a note of salvation. That God will restore them. There will come hard times. God will judge them but they will be restored. The Davidic line will be returned. Prosperity will come back. This prosperity that you think will last forever is only for a moment. It will, become, it will come down, but then God will bring it back. But God will bring it back in a different way. Lesson of Amos is God doesn't just care about what you say you believe, but how you live. Hosea take, Hosea's emphasis is on worship of God. Hosea's uh, message is lived out not just by what he says, but really more by how he lives. Hosea is a story of a man who God tells to marry a prostitute. This goes about as well as you'd expect. This is not Julia Roberts, pretty woman. <laughs> not it. <laughs> but it is a story of Mary's an unfaithful woman, who remains chronically unfaithful. And in his life, he demonstrates this is what God is like. God loves them, but, uh, but they do not love him back. They seek out other gods. They break relationships. They try empty rituals, but the empty rituals can't break the problem, which is the people do not know God. But yet, nevertheless, God still seeks after them. God still seeks after them. So with all the prophets, there's this idea of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. But also judgment based on those two things, which is not being in real relationship with God, and two is oppressing the poor. That will come over and over Again, that was their problem. They thought they were rich, they thought they were powerful, but it came at the expense that they didn't care about. Jeroboam II dies, Zechariah comes, he is evil, he lasts six months, and then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, overthrows him. Are you all keeping track of this? I'll tell you. Shalom lasts a month, he gets killed. Menahem comes to the land, to, but at this point, what we're starting to see is we're starting to be on the downhill slide. Assyria is rising. They come, and first, Menahem's able to pay them off, sends them away with some gold, and they leave them alone. But God's judgment will not be held back forever. His son, Pekahiah, two years, he does what is evil. He gets killed by a guy named Pekah who does what is evil, and then 
Once again, the King Tiglath-Pileser, who for many years thought was not real, but they have found evidence that he really existed, was a real king of Assyria, and he captured some cities, and the noose is tightening. Judgment is coming. We think of judgment as coming overnight, and probably they did too, but the story is that God's judgment comes for a long time. And what does that mean? When God's judgment comes over a long time, what, 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 is it, what could that mean? He's patient. He's patient, and they had an opportunity to repent. But over and over again, we see the kings live in the sin of Jeroboam, setting up a false religion. Pekah is killed by Hosea. He did what is evil, but not in the same way, it says, as his father. But by this point, the die is cast. He is a vassal of Assyria. And he says, well, let me try my best. I'll try to switch to Egypt. Maybe Egypt, I, well, I'll get better terms from them. Turns out king of Assyria, not thrilled by this, imprisons Hosea, eventually besieges Syria and sacks Samaria and takes the capital in 722 B.C. Assyria is permanently exiled. And Assyria's plan, what they did is they tended to take the leaders and they took them out on what, what historians and scholars say was pretty much a forced death march. Sent them to Assyria. And then what they would do is then they would bring in people from other regions they controlled into the land where they had taken the leaders away. So they take all the leadership out, leaving the common people who are not empowered, brings in foreign leadership to intermarry and connect with them. It's kind of a funny story. Brings the people, brings these foreign leaders in. They bring their gods with them. But God then sends lions and attacks them. So the king of Assyria says, well, find a priest that works with that god. And he'll figure out, he'll teach him how to worship them. And he does, the lions subside. But they still build shrines to their gods. Why am I telling you this? This is important too. Because these folks come and the intermarriage of those were left behind, and these foreigners, they intermarry and create a race of people that the New Testament calls Samaritans, after Samaria. So if you've ever wondered, why do the Jews dislike the Samaritans? This is the story behind it. Because you know that well, we'll start about the southern kingdom, 586, 587, they're taken, their, lead, their leadership's taken to Babylon, well, and also in 605 and 597, but that story ends with them coming back. But these 10 tribes of Israel never return. If you've ever heard just like in passing the idea of the lost tribes of Israel, this is them, these northern tribes. They never return. So all the people who are quote unquote Jewish in Jesus' day, they come out of the southern kingdom and the northern, the descendants of the northern kingdom intermarried with these foreigners, they're the Samaritans. So when, when uh, this division that is hate that is hardened into ethnic hatred by Jesus' day is a thousand years in the making. And it comes out of this story. So there's kind of a lengthy postscript to this, and I'll be quick. And it said in 2 Kings 17, Assyria took Samaria because the people of Israel had sinned. They worshipped other gods. They underwent the customs of other nations. Their own kings led them away in other customs. They built high places, so any high ground. They thought that was closer to God, so they built a place there, not in places 
They built Asherah's poles, pillars, on every high hill and under every green tree. The prophets warned them, but they did not listen. They even sacrificed their children to Baal. And on Sunday, I mentioned that in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Torah, God makes very clear, under no circumstances are you to sacrifice your children to Baal, to God, or even to God. Like, that's not a thing. I think someone misheard that Sunday. I want to make sure I made that really clear. Child sacrifice is always outlawed by God in the Bible. And when it is done, it is done against God's will. And very clearly so. So that's the beginning. That's the end of the northern kingdom. It is the price that is paid for not following God, not following him, not worshiping him. Uh, and then what it does to a people, that it leads a people into social chaos, decay, and oppression. But God is a God who is watching and who is a, a God who uh, offers forgiveness, who, offer, who brought prophet after prophet to speak to them, but they did not turn back. And so God executes judgment. It's not the most uplifting part of the Bible. I'll give you that. But it's a part of the Bible that's important for us to understand what happens uh, when, when people uh, disobey. Um, when, when, uh, um, and the need that we have for, for grace and forgiveness. And uh, so it, this chaos that we see here uh, is a prelude to uh, restoration. And we'll see that later. And then next week we'll talk about the southern kingdom, which goes just a little bit differently.